Okay, before we jump into the text for the sermon this morning, uh, I want to talk to our young ones, especially young ones. If I could have your attention, I'm going to tell you what this passage is going to be about and what the sermon is going to be about to prepare your hearts to hear the gospel. So uh, let's jump in this way. Kids, young ones, have y'all ever heard of Snoopy? Snoopy, Charlie Brown, the Peanuts comic? It's old, but it's still around, and it's still brilliant and good. It's wonderful. Okay, there's this one. It's like a comic strip. So there's this one comic strip uh, where this isn't about Charlie Brown or Snoopy, but it's about Charlie's good friend Linus and his older sister Lucy. His older sister Lucy is a real bully. She's terrible. She's mean to everybody, and she beats up Linus all the time, which is why Linus probably walks around with this blanket, his security blanket. He won't go anywhere without it. Okay, so uh, there's this one time in this comic strip where Lucy is really, really sad, and she's crying. She's crying about how just, there's a lot of hard stuff in her day and in her life. And Linus sees her, this person who's so mean to her, and he's not mean back to her. Like, she's crying, and he's like, stop whining. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't say that. She, you know, she's so sad, and he, he's not ha- that doesn't make him happy that this bully is sad. Instead, he looks at her, and he encourages her with love. He says this to her. He says, hey, maybe you should be thankful for the blessings you have. And she snaps back at him. She turns to him, and she's like holding up her fist like she's going to pummel him. And she's like, what blessings, huh? And then Linus says, well, for one thing, you have a brother who loves you. And, that, and Lucy, just all of a sudden, Lucy goes from anger to just tears. And she falls into her brother's arms. And she starts weeping and crying. She's just so thankful for him. And he, Linus says, every now and then, I say the right thing. Um, and there's this thing of what, what changes Lucy's like hard, mean, bad heart. It's love. It's her brother's love. It's her brother's grace, uh, love that she doesn't even deserve. And this is what Paul the Apostle is going to tell us. Paul the Apostle in Romans 12 today is going to tell us something that sounds crazy. It sounds impossible because Paul is going to tell us, the church, that Christians are supposed to love your enemy. You're supposed to love your enemy. You're supposed to bless those who are mean to you. Now, young ones, here, uh, does that sound like fun? Does that, does that sound like something you would want to do? Love your enemy. Y'all can, y'all, you, let's be honest. Young ones, anybody have an opinion on that? Does that sound fun to love your enemy? Thank you. No. That sounds awful. It sounds awful. Like, why? Okay, how about this? Why does that sound not fun? Why does that sound hard? To love your enemy. Love those who are mean to you. If we can be honest again. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it sounds hard to me because we, that just, we want justice. If someone hits you, what do you want to do right back? I mean, kind of feel like hitting them right back. Sometimes you don't even think about it. Like, we want justice. If there's wrong, let's make it right. If they do this to me, I'm going to do this to them back. Uh, and we don't want to love them because they don't deserve, my enemy doesn't deserve love. I want to give them justice. I want to make it right. Okay, so here's the big question. Why would we love our enemy? That's what Paul's going to tell us today. Why would we love our enemy? And the answer is, is because our enemy loved us. Who is our enemy, kids? Who was our enemy? 
This is crazy to think about, but this is true. Who was our enemy at one time? God. God was our enemy. Because all people, everybody, we have all rebelled against God. We've all sinned. We've all said, I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. I want to do things my way. I don't want to listen to God. I want to do what I want to do. And what we deserve from God, we deserve justice. Like just by ourselves, we deserve God's justice, which is this crazy, awful stuff of death, hell, that's what we deserve, kids, because of our sin. And God loves us so much, he sent his son to come and die for his enemies. He sent Jesus to come and live for us and to die for us, to take the justice that we deserve on that cross in order to save us. Loved ones, that's the mercy, that's the love that we hold out to our enemy. Now, when people are mean to us, we, what they really, really need is the love of Jesus. And, and y'all, it's only the love of Jesus. It's only the mercy of Jesus that is going to change our enemies actually into our friends. We were all once enemies too. We're really no different from the people who hate Jesus. They need Jesus just like we need Jesus. And that's the love, that's the mercy that Paul is going to tell us we've got to hold out to our enemies today. So, uh, here we go, jumping into this passage in Romans 12. Uh, just a reminder, the, the first part of Romans, the first 11 chapters, is the gospel of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And it's all about that salvation that the Holy Spirit is applying and working out in his people. And there's this big thing in this transition of that saved people, that includes Jews and it includes Gentiles. All kinds of people. And now we get to the kind of the, the so what of all this gospel stuff in Romans chapter 12. We come to this, so what does it look like for Gentiles and Jews, for different people who believe in Jesus to be the church together? If you believe in the gospel, Romans 1 to 11, then you'll live like this with one another. And now here's Paul shifting to, we've been talking about how do we live together as the church. Now he says, if you believe the gospel, then you believers in the church will live like this with unbelievers out in the world. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going we're to take those first two verses of Romans 12 to orient us, and then we'll skip down to our passage 14 to 21. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, what, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be conformed by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Paul says, if you believe the gospel, Romans 1 to 11, then you, then you believers in the church, if you believe this stuff, 
you believers in the church, both Jews and Gentiles together, you're going to live like this in the world with unbelievers. You're going to love your enemy. Even when your enemy wrongs you, love them. And, and this, this isn't easy for us to hear. It was not easy for the Gentiles to hear this in the church when they first heard this because this was not the ethic of the day. Like, it's hard to hear because it, it, it's still not, for us, the natural ethic of the day. What's natural is revenge. Revenge is the default mode of the human heart when someone wrongs you. You don't have to sit there and think about, I think I'm going to take some revenge. No, you just like, it's there. Uh, it, it, it's, it's automatic. The early 20th century Austrian psycho and, uh, psychoanalyst uh, Sigmund Freud, he described this default mode of the heart in his own understanding. He said, one must forgive one's enemies, preferably after they've been hanged. And that's, the Gentiles, they could get on board with that. Like, yeah, you know, but that's not what Paul said. Uh, but, and, this is also not easy for the Jews in the church to hear. This is not how their people were used to relating to one another in Israel. In the Old Testament in Israel, the law of the land was lex talionis. Uh, when Jesus said, we read this in our confession of faith, you know, when Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that, that stuff of like you've heard it said, that's not like, hey, you've just heard it said out there. I mean, yes, they had heard it said out in the ancient Roman world, but where they had first heard that was in their own law. Like, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament there. You see this principle throughout the law of Israel, it's, and it is all over the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, this, uh, other cultures had adopted this lex talionis. It's, it's this law of retaliation where the punishment fits the crime, and it's a deterrent to maintain justice and, and order. You can't just go around uh, hurting people without consequence. There are consequences, there's going, and there's going to be equitable punishment. So this is, eye for eye is the principle of justice. That's what's fair. And this principle uh, also keeps us from going the other way of overreacting in response like to an offense. Uh, you, don't, you don't get to react harsher than, than the offense itself. So someone slaps you, you don't get to murder them. Uh, and, and there's also, so th hard for Jews to hear this, Gentiles to hear this, that's not our ethic, let's eye for eye. And there's also this history of war and conquest with Israel, where God, when he brings them out of Egypt and he brings them to the promised land, God commanded Israel and he empowered Israel to wipe out their enemy in the land of Canaan. There's this elephant in the room for, for Jews and for Christians who claim the Old Testament is part of our Bible, part of our holy scriptures. Like, How do you reconcile, how do we reconcile this eth ethic that's given to the church, love your enemy, and the ethic of Old Testament Israel, destroy your enemy? There's well-known atheist Richard Dawkins he calls, he talks about the Israelite, he loves to talk about this, uh, he calls the Israelite conquest of Canaan an ethnic cleansing. And he says this, the big problem is that whether true or not, the Bible is held up to us as a source of morality. And the invasion of the promised land is morally indistinguishable, like Israel going into the promised land, it's morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and, and the Marsh Arabs. 
The Bible may be an arresting and poetic work of fiction, but it is not the sort of book you should give your children to form their morals. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgivable control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Biblical scholars and Christians have come up with different theories and different ways to, yeah, okay, let's try to explain how God could command the conquest of the Canaanites. So you hear things like, uh, these historical accounts of the conquest, they're really exaggerated. Like, it wasn't that bad. They're not super accurate. The way it went down was not that horrific. Or you'll hear scholars say these accounts about the conquest are actually totally fictional, and you can't believe everything you read in the Bible. That'll solve it. Or, third, the, the horrific conquest, it actually is acceptable according to the principles of just war. And, and with war, there's always going to be this collateral damage with innocent lives lost. These are really bad answers. The Bible does give the historical and horrific account it really did happen. We can't sweep it under the rug as if it didn't. And if Israel's con- we just need to say this, if Israel's conquest of Canaan were to be tried today in the Interna- International Court of Justice, The Hague, where nations can you know, complain against other nations for unprovoked aggression, they're, they're, they would be found guilty of genocide. Just war theory does not explain the putting to death of men, women, children, livestock, the total destruction of property. The, the only explanation for the conquest of Canaan is this. Ever since the beginning of creation, we have been heading for Judgment Day. Ever since the beginning, we have been heading towards that seventh day eternal Sabbath rest thing. We've been heading for Judgment Day. And if mankind had done what we were created to do, love God and love each other, Judgment Day would have been awesome. Like glorious day for everyone. But when mankind fell, when they rebelled at the fall and our first parents sinned, that Judgment Day became really bad news for them and for everybody they represented, all of us, for everybody. A day that we are now not looking forward to And what God has done is God has chosen at different points in the history of this fallen world, He has chosen to intrude from heaven to earth with anticipations of final judgment, with warnings of final judgment to come that are foreshadowing, warning, reminding us final judgment is coming. Judgment day is coming. So the flood with Noah That was a warning. That was a picture of final judgment to come. Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues on Egypt with Moses, and the conquest of the Canaanites by Israel. Those are all examples of God's very stark, very real, hard warnings of final judgment that's coming for everyone who has ever lived. Israel ended up rebelling. You know, they get into the promised land, but they end up rebelling so much against God Uh, they end up looking just like the Canaanites in the end that they too were judged by God. God brings brings Assyria and Babylon in to judge his own people who have rebelled against him and left him. But that, that picture 
that picture of Israel's conquest, that picture of the holy land of Israel, it's over. It has ended. It has served its purposes and its warnings uh, as this reminder that judgment day is coming, okay? But, but w- what Israel was, it's over. And so one application for us is this. This is really important, that the conquest, it's not a model for our geopolitics. Like, that's not how the U.S. should go about its geopolitics, okay? That would be one. Even though the Canaanite conquest was preached to George Washington, <laughs> this, is what, this is what people were preaching to George Washington and the patriots to encourage them to fight and defeat, quote, the Canaanite British, and the funny irony is, on the other side of the pond, at the same time, British loyalists uh, were, they were hearing this in England, but British loyalists in New York uh, here were preaching that same thing to encourage loyalists to fight the patriotic uh, uh, Canaanite rebels, the patriot Canaanite rebels. Uh, and that stuff's being preached to King George to encourage him and beat the Pats into submission. It's, it, we, we love revenge. My family lived in Boston, the, the cradle of that revolution, for about half a year when I was, when I was a kid. We visited Amish country. Uh, it was awesome, really interesting, incredible thing to see. And there's this 80s movie that I saw at that, you know, this is back in the 80s, but I saw this when we were up there, uh, this movie with Harrison Ford called Witness. Uh, Harrison Ford is a cop. And uh, he gets this case where he's got to protect this young Amish boy who has witnessed a murder. Uh, and Harrison Ford, cop, is John Book. Uh, he discovers early on that the murder, it, it's connected to police corruption at the highest level. Uh, and, and he gets shot. Once he finds this out, he gets real quickly, he gets shot by one of those crooked cops. And he's got to go into hiding with this boy and his family. He's got to live this Amish life. But uh, he finds out that the, the bad guys kill his partner. And, and, and there's a scene where Harrison Ford, John Book, he calls the, 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 this cop that's at the top of the chain here, the corrupt police official, and he calls him at his house and he confronts him about his partner. And he says this, he says, I'm going to find out what you did to him and I'm going to do it to you. And it's a great scene because it's a great moment because you're watching it and you're thinking, that's great. Like, go Harrison. Like, get him, Indiana. It's because revenge films, they strike this nerve, they scratch this itch that we want scratched because we can all relate. Of uh, You know, this is not an insult. Y'all are my favorite people. But every single one of us knows that thing, that desire for revenge. To do what others have done to us. Someone has wronged you. Someone has betrayed you, hurt you. Some, maybe someone you love. Someone who left you to, out to dry and take the fall. Uh, we, me too. We, we all have. And here, here's what this is telling is that God will come in final judgment. God is coming in final judgment against the challenge of the world, against the challenge of its leaders, against the challenge of its people who want to destroy God's people. And, and when God comes, there's no struggle. There's, there's no, on judgment day, the enemy cannot withstand God's onslaught. There is no retreat. There is no escape. In a moment, God's holy war, it'll be over. God will be triumphant. The hostile forces done and beaten. And God's glorious presence will come down on earth from heaven. And it will be enthroned in the land of the new heavens and new earth. And everything is his. And here's the big so what for us is, yes, God is going to show up to execute his wrath. But that is not an invitation to us to call up our enemies and say, I know what you did to me and I'm going to do it to you. 
It's not because we're nice people and we need to be nice people. It's because God has not yet come in final judgment. And that picture of final judgment, that was Israel, that Israel carried out, that picture, it is ended. That warning, it is ended. Old Testament Israel is over. We no longer live in a theocracy. So how do we live in the age of the church? This is the ethic that Jesus has given us. Christians do not respond to the evil done to them by seeking equal retaliation. Old Testament Israel's ethic was the principle of justice. The church's ethic is the principle of mercy. This, you know, that may sound shocking, but this, this ethic given to the church, it's more shocking than just, you know, first take. It's like it's more shocking than just absorb the evil. Don't retaliate. It's more than that. It's absorb the evil and then return it with good. Like those who curse you, bless them. This, new, this, this ethic to the church is not about being passive. You, we are called to action. When our enemies mistreat us, we do not have the right to tr- mistreat them back. We have the duty and we have the privilege of loving them. This is, and here, you know, this is a very, verses 14, this is a very, very practical list. And, and again, this make you read this stuff. And it starts to make you long for, oh, let's just go back to the Rome, like the chapters 1 to 11 theology stuff. Like the practical stuff, this actually sounds harder than wrestling with the theology stuff. Here we go. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. This is, uh, that, that's praying, that's, that looks like praying for the blessing of salvation for your enemies. Because you cannot hate someone that you're praying for to be saved. I mean, even if your prayer sounds like, God, save this moron. God, save this jerk face. Start there. That's a good place to start. Because you're still praying. That's a step in the right direction of you are praying for an enemy for nothing less than their eternal salvation. About verse 15, weep for those who weep. With each of these, by the way, these could all be their own sermons. They're just scratching the surface here. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. When unbelievers suffer, we come alongside them and we cry with them because we know the brokenness of this world too. When unbelievers rejoice, this is harder rejoicing with those who rejoice than weeping. It's not hard to weep with those who weep. But when unbelievers rejoice and they get success after success in this world, we rejoice with them, which is actually really easy for us to do when we remember this world is in this life. That's not a reward. It's the next one. Verse 16, don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. I mean, this is that thing. Jesus welcomed the outcasts of society, the tax collectors, who everybody hated, the prostitutes. He welcomed them into his fellowship. He ate and he drank with sinners. So whoever you think is like the lowly in the world, that kind of person, the gospel is for them. People who we think are incredibly different from us are in reality just like us because of our sin. Because we are all in desperate, absolute need of help. We are all in desperate, absolute need of saving from our sin and death. That's both rich and poor alike. We are all the same. Verse 17, let's just actually, verse 17, 19, 21 together, it's this principle that if, if you're hurt by someone, and you respond by hurting them back, you avenge yourself, 
then Paul says you have actually been overcome by their evil. You've been overcome by evil, and now you're a part of the problem. To repay someone uh, for evil with evil, it's to, want, it's to want to see your enemy hurting and suffering, to make them suffer as you have suffered. And, and we can, there are a lot of ways to do this. We can either just repay evil with evil by going out and actually inflicting that suffering on those who have done it to us. Or the other way to do this is just to sit back. Sit back and hope for our enemies' comeuppance. Sit back and not help them when they need help. Sit back and cheer them on as they destroy themselves. The only way to overcome evil, Paul says, Jesus says, is with good. And that most basically can look like this. When someone wrongs you, you forgive them. And that thing of forgiveness, that comes before feeling the forgiveness. That thing of when it pops into your head, those, those, those dreams of revenge, you, you, you stop yourself and you, and you put your mind on something else. You don't dwell on it. You forgive. You pray. You, again, you pray for their forgiveness. Verse 18. This is a good one. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Like On the one hand, that means... We, we do not retreat. You cannot retreat from the world. We do not retreat from the world and live in our own private commune. That's, that's, not, that's not faithfulness. Uh, away from anyone who could possibly disagree with us or potentially offend us. That's, that's not the way. Paul, and on the other hand, Paul is a realist here. He's a realist, and he knew that there are going to be some people who are totally unappeasable. There are going to be some people in your life who you try as you might to reconcile with them, continue to extend patience and kindness with them, like try to listen and understand them. Some people are just not going to have peace with you. So Paul says, do the best you can, even with impossible people. Do the best as you can for, for, uh, uh, pe- with people over a lifetime. Verse 20. I think of will their good. If they're hungry, feed them. Thirsty, give them something to drink. That is a picture of doing good to those who, who don't want to help you but ruin you. They don't want to help, but you help them when they are in need. And, and this thing of the heat burning coals on their head, there's tons of, I mean, there have been commentaries written on this thing, like what does this mean? And, and sometimes the simplest explanation is the best one. The, the plain reading of this is, if you were in a besieged city and invaders were storming the walls, one of the ways you can de- defend your city is you throw down fire on them. You throw down hot liquid, you throw down hot coals uh, on those who are scaling your defenses. And Paul is saying, listen, it's hard for our enemies to attack us when you put them on the defensive. Like you got hot coals running, you know, you're, you're running the other direction. So uh, what that means is, <laughs> what that means is you, we, we are supposed to engage our enemies. Not physically. This is not a physical engagement. The authority given to the church, it is not physical. It's spiritual. You go read Ephesians and you read what is the weapon of our warfare. It's the gospel of grace. So we engage our enemies, and how do we do this? We just spent a semester uh, talking about this, defending the faith. 
one of the ways you can do this is you, you engage with the enemies of, let me hear, yes, let me hear the offenses, let me hear your questions, let me hear your criticisms, okay? And you listen, and you listen, and you listen, and what you're listening for are their own internal contradictions because they are there. And you're trying to help them understand, let me enter into your understanding and your worldview to show you that it actually doesn't work. They're all kind, like, you've got problems, I promise you there are bigger problems with your problems. That's one way. And the other way to do it is then you share the truth of the gospel. You share the gospel of grace with them. That's the stuff of pouring hot coals on their heads. That's the way to put them on the defensive is to share the love and grace of Jesus with them. And this ethic, love your enemies, it does not make us victims. This ethic does not make us doormats. It does not make us enablers of abuse. We, we are believers in justice. Uh, there will be justice. There will be ultimate and final justice. We believe in all that. And, and right now, at this time, it doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean husbands get to abuse their wives and say, hey, you know what, you got to just take it and turn the other cheek. No, that's not what that means. Like we don't innately, sometimes you do in order to love another person, to love an enemy is to hold them accountable. Uh, you can involve police when it's appropriate. You can involve family and friends in the church and others when it's appropriate. But this, this thing of like, we do believe in justice. It's not that we don't. We do believe in justice, and there will be justice. We believe in ultimate and final justice. And if we're going to hold out love to our enemies before that final day, this is one, this is one we have got to turn back on ourselves first. I know I'm not the only one that struggles with this. Prayer, it can be boring. Reading the Bible, that's, that can be boring. Liturgy, boring. Like this sermon is boring because we're bored with the whole thing. Like we're all susceptible to that, either because you've grown up with this and this has become so routine to you, or because everything is hard right now and you came here to be uplifted. Different reasons for different individuals, but what we do all share in common, the one common root cause for struggling with being flippant about the, about the Christian life, about what we've been called to do is this. My natural condition is to go around day-to-day -day thinking, God loves me because I'm lovable. Like, I'm going to get that pass into heaven because it's me. And the truth is, I, and I'm talking me, I, I deserve justice. I deserve, when God comes back, I by myself, I deserve his wrath. And God has promised that one day on that final day, he is coming back. And he is bringing his righteous, just judgment with him. And most of the time, most of my days, that's just not real to me. And so I'm bored. But that doesn't make, that doesn't make this reality, that struggle of ours, that doesn't make this reality any less real. It's still real. There is a final judgment to come because of the sinfulness of humanity. The problem is not, you know, we can go back and like, the problem is not God judged the Canaanites and the Babylonians. That Like, yes, we can deal with it. The problem is now he is coming to judge all of us. To vent his wrath on everybody in a very real sense. We, you and me, all of us, were Canaanites worthy of that final judgment. But for Christ, and that's the awesomeness of the gospel. The gospel is that God intrudes into the history of mankind again. Before that final day of judgment, uh, he intrudes with judgment. But this time, this is not a warning. This time, this is not, it's not a picture. It's not just a warning. 
before the Son of God comes on his, on his war chariot at the end of, of all of history, he already came down from heaven as a baby. And he lived for us. And he died for us. His enemies. When, when Jesus goes to the cross, that is God's final judgment intrusion. But it's our condemnation that Jesus takes on the cross and he takes it for us. So on the cross, Jesus, he's mocked by those who are crucifying him, by the Jewish religious leaders, and they say, let him call his angels' armies to come and save him. And the irony is, Jesus could have called down his, he could have done that. He could have called down his angel armies. He could have come down on that, off that cross himself if he had wanted to and executed his justice on all those who are crucifying him and the rest of, the, rest of humanity, and he would have been right to do so. Jesus judging everyone would have displayed his justice. It would have been glorifying to God, his Father. But Jesus does not call down eye for eye. Not for us. Jesus stays on the cross, and he doesn't just take the hate and the mocking and the torture. He prays for those who are killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Paul has already said this in Romans 5. This was our assurance. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us when we were his enemies. And it's only that gospel of love and grace where, where justice and grace meet on the cross. It's only that that's going to break through our desire for revenge on our enemies. That's it. That's the only thing. That the Son of God has come down from heaven and he stood in our place taking justice, taking that wrath. Our hope is to stand with him and to lovingly and to graciously and to patiently call all, anyone, everyone, to join us and to be saved through his judgment for us. That's the mercy that we extend to all, even our enemies. Let's pray. Father, we... We praise you for your mercy, and we praise you for fulfilling all justice in our place, uh, for taking, for sending your son to take what we do not want to take, uh, what we can't take except forever in hell away from you. Father, we pray that that judgment that is looming, that judgment that is real, that judgment is to come, would spurn us to love, would spurn us to mercy, to extend that mercy to those who want to see us done, to those who want to see us uh, hurt. Uh, Lord, give, <laughs> we can only have that grace. We can only have that power to love our enemy through your love. So help us and bless us here with one another to continue to hold out your love and grace and to continue to point each other to your love and grace in Jesus Christ in order that we would be able to go out into the world. And Father, that you would continue to grow us so much so that that does become, by your, your supernatural power in us, that that becomes the natural reaction. To turn the other cheek. To, to, to love and not want revenge. Father, to lay down our lives for others, that others might know the love and grace of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name, and we pray it for his glory. Amen.